darkly splendid abodes. The official podcast of Toronto Philippe. Exploring, if you will, practical philosophy. From science and the workings of the mind to spirituality, esotericism, and magic. Stooping down, dipping my wings, I came into the darkly splendid abodes. In Magic Without Tears, Crowley talks about the three schools of magic, which seem to be differing philosophical perspectives on the universe. But they also seem to represent three factions of magicians, each of which attempts to guide humanity based on their respective philosophical conclusions. We'll take a deep dive into the relevant chapters as we revisit this book. Do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Love is the law, love under will. Oh. Uh, so today uh, we're back uh, into Magic Without Tears by Alistair Crowley, um, except uh, the contrivance today is that we're going to be looking at M. Gerard Aromont's promised essay originally titled The Three Schools of Magic. Mm. Goodness knows what it's titled now. <laughs> uh, perhaps... Uh, the three schools of philosophy or something one might guess because of something he says later on here but it's it's very difficult to know this is letter number six seven and uh to a lesser extent eight although i think eight is going to be mostly about uh, this argument between uh well the what was it called the uh the world teacher campaign mm-hmm. uh, be, uh the the argument between crowley and um suddenly forgotten his name Krishnamurti? Yeah, Krishnamurti. And then uh, also about how Thelema is exemplary of white school doctrine. Also a little bit of yellow school mm-hmm. uh, excellence leaking in there. <laughs> um, so so that's our, our proposed subject for today. Did you enjoy these letters? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we were going to originally do all three letters, but then at your suggestion, we w- we decided that the third one uh, probably warrants its own uh, episode or subject matter. Y- yeah. Um, so I thought we needed to do all three letters because I assumed one letter would talk about the yellow school, one letter would talk about the black school, and one letter would talk about the white school. Um, but actually, black and white are done... Uh, together in, in the seventh letter, the second of this series mm-hmm. of three, and then and then yeah, the third letter is devoted to um, sort of something else, to talking about Thelema as an example of you know the highest ideals of of both the white and yellow school, and to to sort of slagging off Krishnamurti, <laughs> and uh, talking about uh, a coming war, a war between the black and white schools. Yeah, and it's uh, interesting that we have the the black and white it, it's kind of seems inevitable that they end up being covered in the same chapter because it's it's the type of thing where we always have uh, the two polarities, so to speak, and then the uh, the kind of in between element that uh, perhaps binds them mm. or perhaps mediates them. So in this case, the yellow school uh, likes to stay out of the way and allow things to uh, uh, take shape with as little 
resistance or friction as possible, and the black and white are constantly in opposition. I said before when we were talking about the Black Brothers that it was important not to confuse the Black Brothers with um, black school magicians because black school magicians are, are sort of our allies, um, and that, you know, both the black school and the white school are, are working hard to make adepts and having more adepts is, is better, you know. Mm. And so uh, the adversarial tone of, of this uh, was surprising to me. And, um, of course, the context of, the, um, uh, of the, the world teacher campaign makes that make sense because he, he can say that, oh, Krishnamurti is a, a black adept and I'm a white adept and the two schools are in conflict, so let's be in conflict. Uh, mm-hmm. um, and, and there's a war coming. But I, I think it's, it's deeper than that. And so I wanted to, I wanted to read um, the fifth section of the introduction to Nietzsche's Genealogy of Morals, which talks about this, this war between the black and white schools in a slightly different way, in a larger way. Mm. The battle between Crowley and Krishnamurti for the soul of mankind being maybe one battle in a, in a, a war that might be much, much larger. And we can think about the ways in which this war might be larger if we start here in this kind of mm. uh, weird place. Actually, just then, I was preoccupied with something much more important than the nature of hypotheses, mine or anybody else's, on the origin of morality. Or to be more exact, the latter concerned me only for one end, to which it is one of many means. For me, it was a question of the value of morality. And here I had to confront my great teacher Schopenhauer, to whom that book of mine spoke as though he were still present, with its passion and its hidden contradiction, it too being a polemic. I dealt especially with the value of the unegoistic, the instincts of compassion, self-denial, self-sacrifice, which Schopenhauer had for so long gilded, deified, and transcendentalized until he was finally left with them as those values as such, on the basis of which he said no to life, and to himself as well. But against these very instincts, I gave vent to an incredibly deep mistrust, a skepticism which dug deeper and deeper. Precisely here I saw the great danger to mankind, its most sublime temptation and seduction. Temptation to what? To nothingness? Precisely here I saw the beginning of the end, standstill, mankind looking back wearily, turning its will against life, and the onset of the final sickness becoming gently, sadly manifest. I understood the morality of compassion casting around ever wider to catch even philosophers and make them ill as the most uncanny symptom of our European culture which had itself become uncanny as its detour to a new Buddhism, a new Euro-Buddhism, to nihilism. The predilection for and overvaluation of compassion that modern philosophers show is in fact something new. Up to now, philosophers were agreed as to the worthlessness of compassion. I need only mention Plato, Spinoza, La roche en 
or however you say that, I apologize, mm -hmm. and Kant, four minds as different from one another as it is possible to be, but united on one point, their low opinion of compassion. And so uh, in the letters we're about to read, we'll, we'll see Armand talk about the difference between uh, Spinoza and Schopenhauer as well, uh, accuse Schopenhauer of being uh, self-destructive and suicidal, of saying no to life, mm -hmm. of, of, of bringing a kind of Buddhistic philosophy to Europe. This is where he's getting that, I'm almost uh, certain, right? And, uh, and the idea that a Buddhistic philosophy, that, that compassion uh, uh, sort of transmutes itself into life denial, and it says here it's hungry, it goes out and infects people, infects even philosophers, right? So when you begin showing compassion, you know, uh, a, a, a even appropriate compassion for, you know, one person in one circumstance, it becomes, uh, uh, compassion has a tendency to, 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 to self-replicate and, uh, and you start, it, it's almost the idea of like looking down, you know, being pit, pitiful and pathetic um, and, uh, and um, manifesting in a in a sort of uh, a, a sorrow about all circumstances whatsoever, which eventually leads you to to the uh, an idea of, of nihilism about life in general and an, and an unwillingness to uh, uh, to to do life is 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 the charge here that Nietzsche is making, and that Armand is going to uh, is going to echo in his. Uh, essays here. So, you know, the, the theosophy, you know, f at least for Thelemites, maybe there are still theosophists around doing theosophy. And if they are, that's fine. Uh, to us, I think it's largely irrelevant. And to mm -hmm. uh, um, broader culture, this, this argument between, you know, uh, Crowley and, and uh, Krishnamurti it's a it, it's a thing long long forgotten. But the nihilism of the the modern age, you know, the the people who sort of think facts don't matter, or that all circumstances are sort of bad. In in the Dati mm -hmm. King, we read about contempt for all circumstances, or that you know we exalt entertainment products above almost everything else. You know, these are kinds of layers of nihilism, um, uh, which. Thelemic practice is supposed to be able to combat. So we can think about this war between the black and white schools, you know, people wanting to tell you that, uh, you know, yoga is good for relieving stress or that, you know, you get to mm -hmm. this one mindedness place. So you realize that there's no difference between any one thing and any other thing, or you just, you know, eventually you fade away and you don't exist anymore. Um, yeah. uh, the white school, which sees life as conflict should be an antidote for this kind of uh, this kind of of life denying type of of thinking. Yeah, it's a good good way to think about the uh, Thelemic practice of including both magic and mysticism, so that the magic balances the mysticism. Uh, whereas the mysticism tends towards uh, going inward and and like you say, kind of like settling things so that you're you become calm, you become more capable of looking inward in a clear way. That's great, but it's only one side of the coin. 
I don't actually think yoga does this. Like, I don't really believe this line about how yoga is a tool for managing stress. I think it does something else. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and uh, Well, the, but the, there's a difference between what I was saying and, and the idea of managing stress, though, because sure. the idea behind uh, yoga and Correct me if I'm wrong, but the idea is to like uh, like if you go by, for instance, uh, Raja Yoga by Vivekananda, where he's talking about um, he's talking about the mind being a lake, and uh, by settling all the waves of the lake, you are able to perceive the self. So that's part of the project, right? I guess my uh, uh, my only kind of uh, offense to that is that people think it should be easy. <laughs> you oh, know, yeah, yeah. Or, or, or that they, 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 you know, they meditate for 20 minutes and like, oh, I felt so calm afterwards. Like, yeah. If you felt calm afterwards, you probably weren't meditating. Yeah. The You're actual practice is very... Tat, uh, what is it? Um, rajas, sattvas, and tamas. It's like shoveling tamas <laughs> onto <laughs> it and rather than actually cre- creating clarity. Yeah. So, um, um, you know, it, w- when you become very, very practiced, you know, there are peaceful states that can be attained, but it's not the... Uh, um, but the practice itself is not a is not a peaceful, restful practice. You mm-hmm. know? And that's kind of what I'm getting at with the idea of like balancing it with magic, so that you're not just using it as escapism. And Crowley does talk about that in his uh, uh, paper on the dangers of mysticism that appears in the Equinox. Uh, second time we've mentioned it, so maybe it's worth uh, doing that at some Definitely. at some future point. Where do we want to? Um, well, to set the stage here. for this, we've got as you mentioned, Omont. Uh, it's uh, attributed to Oman, who is uh, somebody who uh, Crowley knew uh, just post-Cheflu period, from what I understand. So yet again, we're in that same sort of region of time, and uh, I guess that's where the, the whole Krishnamurti thing was coming to a head. Uh, and uh, whereas, so it was, was it Annie Besant and... Uh, Dude, I don't remember who the guy was, <laughs> but uh, they were like trying to put forward Krishnamurti as this uh, world teacher. Um, but Crowley was in Tunisia. He had been kicked out of uh, Sicily. Um, and <laughs> I, I, I saw something on the uh, internet about somebody pointing out that Liberaz says man has the right to travel as he will upon the face of the earth. And he was, this person was trying to say, well, Crowley only added that in because he was, uh, kicked out of being, kicked out of Italy for being a shit. And it's like, okay, well, number one, you know, you, you, you do things based on your experience and there's nothing bad about that. (laughs) Number two, he was kicked out by fucking Mussolini. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what are yeah. you what are you trying to say exactly but um either way he ended up in tunisia and that's where he met Oman. and um so Oman was a uh, writer of uh friend he was a frenchman who was writing uh he was a journalist i guess and writing uh, articles of various kinds and and he ended up uh writing a few pieces that uh were related to the subject of thelema and um, in this case, Crowley is attributing this to him and it does smack of Crowley's, you know, style in, in many ways. Well-known, uh, notable paranoiac Marcello Moda uh, <laughs> it, uh, is absolutely convinced that this is original Crowley material. Mm-hmm. Um, As it, is Israel Rigardi, but he's... Uh... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, um, but I, I think at least when we're 
at least for the purposes of this conversation, we should attribute it to Armand because yeah. that's what it says. So we can say Armand thinks this and Armand thinks that. And yeah, so fine. we're going with that sort of idea here. So uh, and we're we're going to commit to that. It 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 all it reads like Crowley to me as well, but not knowing, you know, the 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 work is cited <laughs> and so we should maybe follow the citations that are on the page yeah and so um this is interesting because i don't i can't think of another place that i've read about this conception of the three schools of magic but it does specifically point to within this piece it points to uh the vision and the voice as being a source for this this idea um it's it's a sensible sort of breakdown for things but like i said i'm not sure i can't think of any anywhere else where i've read about this specifically i don't know if you have no i don't know where this uh idea comes from whether it's uh an armand originated idea or um uh i i mean the idea of there being sort of branches of spiritual practice and that uh, you know, the Taoists have a different attitude than the Buddhists and that uh, maybe Christian mystics in the early period or uh, Greeks like Hellenic Greeks because of their different worldview had different spiritual goals and different spiritual approaches. That just seems like undeniably true to me. Mm-hmm. Um, whether or not this is the best way to do a taxonomy of those things is uh, I, you know, an open question as far as I'm concerned. I don't really have a way to evaluate um, the the quality of this nomenclature, yeah. Um, uh, but uh, provisionally, I you know, I mean, it, it, it's important to see that different different metaphysics gives you different goals, and different goals require different techniques, and yeah. and that um, and that uh, different morality might spring out from there. Keith four eighteen. Uh, when I was on Facebook, uh, one of the things I noticed him saying from time to time is that uh, values come from metaphysics, and uh, I, I always I found that a bit mysterious. You know, like how could you know whether or not I'm pro-abortion? Let's say mm-hmm. uh, if I ask what are causes. You know, let's say I believe in material causes that, you know, uh, when when one billiard ball hits another, the 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 force, you know, the one billiard ball causes the other one to move. Or uh, uh, there's a, a great Muslim philosopher's name, I forgot, who wants to say that, no, God is every cause. Mm-hmm. So the two billiard balls hitting each other is a coincidence. And when one hits the other, God causes the force to be transferred. God causes the second one to be moved. Those are two different metaphysical conceptions of, of like what a cause would be. Yeah. How does that, you know, f- how, how does that affect my opinion on, you know, whether abortion is wrong, whether theft is wrong, whether, you know, it's appropriate to, uh, to you know, do this, <laughs> do this or that. Uh, but it, here we get a, a beginning of this kind of answer, right? Like, mm-hmm. uh, um, like for the Taoists, if the universe is so big that change is impossible... Then you, you know, you just do the things you were meant to do anyway, and you value this kind of frictionlessness. Whereas if for the Buddhist, uh, the universe is just one big sorrowful error, and you value 
you know, managing and reducing sorrow, then you try to do fewer and fewer actions. <laughs> you know, mm. one is just spontaneously going with the flow. The other one is refusing to act at all. And they value those things based on their, their different sort of starting points in terms of how they view uh, what their metaphysical sort of notions yeah, and I, are. I guess there's there's got to be, you know, a sort of reciprocal relationship there as well. So I, I would think um, that it would kind of be, you know, one, one affects the other and then that other affects the one and there can be a, an ongoing relationship there as well. I mean, I, for myself, like I grew up, you know, going through high school was a miserable experience for me, and I was just in a very dark place. Uh, and so, I, I when I got around to reading Schopenhauer, it was like, uh, yeah, I get this. This makes total sense <laughs> to me. <laughs> and I think ever since, uh, you know, growing up Catholic, but then going through this very uh, dark stage of my life that was very... Uh, misanthropic in a lot of ways and uh just yeah uh i think coming out of that even to this day i still have what we could term black school kinds of inclinations that i'm slowly processing and attempting to confront analyze understand and potentially transmute yeah so this is a um sort of a a weird problem for for me in approaching this text. There's going to be, uh, he's going to say that it's important to understand that magic is not religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, even though we're going to talk about these as Buddhistic ideas or Taoist ideas, and that we're going to look at the Tao Te Ching as being the highest classic of the Yellow School, we don't mean religion. And, uh, and so... I think the distinction, even though it's not completely explicit in here what the distinction should be, I think the distinction is that while religions tend to homogenize, you know, you create a community and impose values and sort of make a large group of people that can work together en masse for different goals or or whatever, that um, magic needs to be have liberation as a goal you know, uh, mm-hmm. that that all yoga that uh, even the buddhistic meditative practice which which the goal is annihilation the way they express that is as an escape from suffering the world is suffering uh suffering is caused by attachment it, there is a, a way to escape from attachment the way of escape is through the buddha and so magical practice needs to be oriented towards some type of liberation, which is anti- antithetical to this kind of yeah. uh, group, not antithetical to the project of community building, but is not the same as the project of community building. Yeah, and there's an important distinction here that is explicitly uh, made clear, which is that uh, magic is science. It's a form of science. It's just that it keeps ahead of what we think of as science. And it is the science of the incommensurables, which essentially basically means the unmeasurable, I guess you could say. Well, uh, things that are incommensurable cannot be measured with the same units. Mm -hmm. And so it essentially means it's like an apples to oranges comparison. You know, I have 50 pounds of rice. 
but you know how many pounds of oxygen do I have? Mm. If oxygen's lighter than air, like you can actually talk, you can actually talk about gases in this way in terms of the weight of gases. But uh, but imagine that you that you can't imagine that if you put oxygen on a scale, no matter how much you have, you'll never be able to weigh it. Mm -hmm. So you do talk about oxygen in terms of volume, or in terms of pressure, or in terms of something else. Whereas you talk about you know solid objects in terms of uh mass in terms of in terms of weight yeah and so the idea i i think that the the controversial idea here is that that you sort of can't do science because the ideas are incommensurable they don't they don't relate to each other in measurable ways so you can't take a you you can't take um subjective measure of them so he's saying it's a science but he's also saying the kinds of topics that it approaches are not transparent to scientific mm -hmm. methods and he does say that this is like a, a very particular kind of a very specific kind of definition mm -hmm. uh, given the the subject at hand and then it compares that to religion which on the contrary seeks to ignore the laws of nature so magic is specifically learning by way of the laws of nature and by way of uh, observing and interacting with nature versus religion which ignores the laws of nature uh, and presumably imposes its own laws onto nature. It is customary to describe these three schools as yellow, black, and white. Uh, the first thing necessary is to warn the reader that they must by no means be confounded with racial distinctions of color, that they correspond still less with conventional symbols such as yellow caps, yellow robes, black magic, white witchcraft, and the light. The danger is only the greater that these analogies are often as alluring as the as they prove as they on pro examination to be misleading. Yeah. So you want to? He says the ex most exemplary. Book of the Yellow School is the Tao Te Ching. You know, if you want, you can think. It, it, it's we don't use this terminology now, but if you want, you can think of East Asians as being like yellow men. So it's alluring to think of being like There's yellow magic as being like sort. the yellow science. You know, mm -hmm. for, as uh, but. Uh, and so he's saying that there's these correlations often seem to exist, but they're um, they're false. It's not it's not precisely what yeah, it means. Yeah, it's even like earlier you were saying you were relating the, the Buddhism to Taoism in this way, and it's like yeah, it's it's just a, it's easier, you know. Yeah, it's just easier to have a conversation using these terms, but it's it's very very tricky. It gets picky here, right? Because he says. Uh, I don't know what Crowley tends to think of um, South Asians as as black. In this paper, it says it says Negroid actually, <laughs> the, mm. which is great. Uh, <laughs> um, and then uh, and then he uh, that so, term is derived from the Latin for black. By the that's way, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Just in just for the sake of etymology and whatnot. Uh, and then uh, he says uh, very few examples of white school philosophers exist anywhere outside of Europe. So it it really seems, even though he's saying here that these are not race distinctions, it really seems that he's he's talking about um, differences between East Asian philosophy, South Asian philosophy, and European philosophy. Um, except that Vedantic philosophy and then the the Upsha, Upsha, Upanishads, Upanishads 
that that kind of, he he'll describe those as uh, as an attempt in South Asia to be kind of like an emergence of of something that's more approaching white school philosophy, even though Crowley's prejudice against the Hindus is kind of his most his most acute prejudice. He really likes Hindu philosophers. It seems like well Hindu people just less than uh, pretty much anyone else. Um, but he's going to talk about, you know, Vedantic philosophy as being like yeah, he's got a lot of early white school. A doctrine. lot of that pride about uh, England when it was an empire for that, mm-hmm. that period of time and, and part of that empire ship involved um, the uh, dominance of India. And so I think he's got a lot of issues tied up with that sort of... Uh, that relationship. He even mentions like the uh, there's a relationship between uh, the white school views the, the the black school basically in the same way that in the same way as the aristocratic English sahib of the days when English was a nation. Snar- smarmy <laughs> regarded the benighted Hindu. Yeah. And again, we're attributing all this to Crowley, even though Crowley attributes yeah. it to, to Armand. Nasty habit, just like uh, attributing these. <laughs> but, <laughs> We've but, got a lot of... Uh... But we know that these are also Crowley's prejudices, even if they're Armand's prejudices. Crowley will write in a negative tone about uh, about Hindu people uh, It does. Well. It, that is kind of a tell right there, too, now that I think about it. it's uh, if, if it's Armand writing this, then uh, that's an odd little you know quirk to to mention that you'd think he'd make more of a connection to something french like maybe the french relationship to tunisia that they're in um but yeah <laughs> so it does seem a little bit uh interesting that that you know that's the case that that little quirk of britishness comes out paragraph 11 of letter number six well, let's deal with this one sentence at a time the three schools represent three perfectly distinct and contrary theories of the universe and therefore practices of spiritual science. We've already talked about that a little bit. You know, this uh, mm. uh, values come from metaphysics thing, but this is this is important. Is, is, is we're not trying to draw arbitrary uh, lines here. We're not trying to draw necessarily race lines here. Although that, you know, if if one idea takes over in one nation, then the nation, you know, people in that nation may agree. Have similar metaphysicals, metaphysical ideas might might lead to similar values. There could so be an exchange it, with the culture, yeah. This, this is why it becomes sort of cross-cultural. And sort of the bleed of ideas from one nation to another is is possible. But the, the point of these distinctions is not really the racial distinction. The main idea is this idea of of. of different sort of root metaphysical theories. Um, Each assumes as fundamental a certain law of nature, and the subject is complicated by the fact that each school in a certain way admits the formulae of the other two. It merely regards them as in some way incomplete, secondary, or illusionary. Um, So even though each school has its own sort of central metaphysical tenet, there's recognition of the, you know, the possibility of, there's sympathy between the three various positions and, and they recognize the the value of, of yeah, what each it seems other like, brings. It seems like they've essentially, these three different schools have all come to 
roughly the same approximation of uh, understanding the universe, and it's just three different perspectives on the same subject, essentially. But there is some bleed over because it's not as cut and dry as it might be if it was if it was talking about from a religious perspective. Yeah, I mean, it seems that each of the schools more or less accepts the first noble truth of Buddhism, mm-hmm. that life is suffering, but it's the... It's, it's questions about that? the cause of the suffering and the possibility for overcoming suffering and, 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 you know, how you, how you, um, what, what falls out from there is, is different in each case. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, as will be seen later, the yellow school stands aloof from the other two by the nature of its postulates. So maybe uh, they don't postulate that life is suffering, but that the black and the white school are always more or less in active conflict. And again, that sort of surprised me. But here, let's quickly read through this quotation from the vision and the voice that you mentioned earlier. And, uh, and then we can go on to talk about the, the, the three schools individually. Mm-hmm. And a voice cries, Cursed be he that shall uncover the nakedness of the Most High, for he is drunken upon the wine that is the blood of the adepts. And Babylon hath lulled him to sleep upon her breast, and she hath fled away and left him naked. And she hath called her children together, saying, Come up with me, and let us make a mock of the nakedness of the Most High. And the first of the adepts covered his shame with a cloth, walking backwards, and was white. And the second adept covered his shame with a cloth, walking sideways, and was yellow. And the third of the adept made a mock of his nakedness, walking forward, and was black. And these are the three great schools of the Magi, who are also the three Magi that journeyed unto Bethlehem. And because thou hast not wisdom, thou shalt not know which school prevaileth, or if the three schools shall be not one. And so one of the things that I think is interesting about this Maybe the the least interesting thing about it uh, is that, um, again, this is another one of those corrections uh, to Mm -hmm. very commonly biblically interpreted verse. So this this verse is a a correction to the interpretation of the story of Noah and the curse of Ham. And so what happens is, uh, is Ham stumbles in on Noah, who's, who's drunk and naked, and sort of panics, seeing his dad naked, runs off, tells his brothers, and his brothers will, will cover up their father's nakedness. They walk backwards with the cloth and, you know, put a blanket over him so he's not naked anymore. And uh, Noah, when he wakes up, realizes that one of one of his kids saw him naked, says, Ham, you know, uh, not great that you saw me naked. So your firstborn son, Canaan, and all his progeny will have to live in the house of his uncles and be their servants forever. And so one of the dodgy things about this is that it's one of the places in the Bible where slavery seems to be justified, you know, the, the, the children and, and justified on a genealogical basis, you know, the children of Ham forever have to be servants in the houses of Shem and Jepheth. And then, uh, there's in the Americas, uh, the new religious movements, uh, will talk about Ham as maybe being a person of color, 
uh, and so that Canaan and all his offspring, it becomes a justification for for black slavery in the United States, which it just obviously isn't, but it is a justification of of slavery along genealogical. This is what humans lines. do; they rationalize their way into what they want. And so here, the um, and and like I said before, there are a lot of these verses in the Bible that are usually pointed at as justifications for American slavery, and the vision of the voice systematically corrects the interpretation and makes mm-hmm. them do something else. So here, it's not um, Ham that sees his father naked; it's Babylon invites all all her children to come mm. and look at the nakedness of the Most High and make a mockery of him. And the only one who sort of obeys the the beckoning of the Lady Babylon is is the black brother. That, you know, and it's supposed to be the love of Babylon that draws us across the abyss. And this black magician, right? Not not a black brother of left hand path, but the magician of the adept of the black school of magic does what Babylon says and comes and witnesses the nakedness of the Most High. Just like in the in the other quotation you read about how, like, the adepts of the AA, you know, their buttocks are worn away by the kisses of the mm-hmm. aspirants, you know? So um, Crowley's interpretation of this is that the white adept is the pure mystic whose attitude towards God is one of reverence. The yellow school uh, conceals the mysteries indeed, but examines them as it goes along, walking sideways, right? And the black school is that of pure skepticism, and you know, wants to look directly at the nakedness of the Most High, is not afraid to flinch, you know? So there's a way in which this walking forward and being called black is... It doesn't seem, at least from this parable, it doesn't seem nihilistic in the way they're talking about it, right? It confronts the world as it really is. It's skeptical. It's not afraid of conflict. It, uh, it obeys the edicts from the Lady Babylon. So there's, it seems to me there's controversy in this paper, even though this wants to say that, like, you know, Thelemites are... Are the, are the white adepts of the white school who uh, have pure reverence for God, the way we actually behave when we, you know, uh, when we do our AA work is much more like this black adept who walks forward and is proud to yeah, mock the nakedness of the Most High. I had a lot, I have to confess, I had a lot of trouble with this. Uh, this passage in the following paragraph or two, just trying to suss it out and also trying to uh, consolidate it with the... Uh, um, with what you have just mentioned, which is the, from the comment- Crowley's commentary on the vision of the voice, and uh, which also, in addition to that commentary, by the way, he also made a note that uh, to the uh, the final passage, because thou hast not wisdom, thou shalt not know which school prevaileth, or if the three schools be not one. There was a note added by Crowley under the name of Therion 9 equals 2, which of course is attributed to Chokmah, which is wisdom on the tree of life, uh, which said, they are. Mm-hmm. Which in itself, like, I mean, that's, that's if we if we took it as three separate <laughs> um, interpretations, we have that, which that all three schools are one. And then we have the interpretation that you just read through where there's, uh, it's analyzing them separately. And then we have the, the uh, analysis that comes in this particular paper, purported to be by Omont, it's it's a little bit convoluted because it's kind of saying it doesn't it doesn't really break it down in a very clear way as far as I can tell because it seems to say that 
uh, there's evidence internally of, of this passage that it was actually written by a brother of the black school and as a black magical uh, operation. So it's combining <laughs> a mm-hmm. couple of ideas here and then uh, saying that this is like basically an indication of the uh, Ophidian processes of a magician. Um, <laughs> yeah, and the conspiracy seems to be, it says, the insidious attempt to identify the doctrine of the black school with the kind of black magic that is commonly called diabolism. So the 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 it's it's not like what we see now with a kind of um, la di da hooray for every everyone hippie sort of mentality being the spoonful of sugar that 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 chases down nihilism right <laughs> with like you know oh isn't it important to have uh compassion for those less fortunate to worry about the people who how is it phrased now there's something about uh um anyway something about you know the people with the least cultural capital being the most important because they can't uh, speak up for themselves right like uh this idea that we should we should have extra care and then and and that seems right in some ways yeah but that's it's sort of like a like a a dulling down and evening out but if what we're doing is is bringing all culture down to the level of the lowest common denominator then there's nihilistic forces <laughs> then there's it's actually um it's a way of sneaking in a kind of nihilistic outlook um uh this is not that this this is not the the sort of like the poison pill of altruism that degrades culture this is the black school pretending to be diabolic. Why? What does that do for them? <laughs> you know, maybe it makes them seem dangerous so that people want to come over and try like and wearing the black a leather skill. jacket. <laughs> yeah, it, it's not it's not clear what the con is, yeah. uh, except that maybe if maybe maybe it is maybe that is exactly the con the black black school magicians pretend to be diabolic which makes them s- seem more put upon so you have more sympathy for the underdog it's you know like oh here are these here are these bad guys doing bad stuff and isn't it too bad <laughs> you well, know you know I let's guess, have some sympathy for the devil yeah what if what if it's um uh, the the black school is making a mockery of the most high because once you reveal once you take away that veil and look uh behold the most high you recognize that the, the the sort of horror of the truth of things that underlies things. Uh, and as a result, the white school is covering it and backing away because it's accepting the illusion as the play of existence, if we were to play with that idea. And then the yellow school is walking sideways because it's kind of mediating once again between the two perspectives, whereas the black school is making a mockery of it by looking nature in the very face and denying it. So there's this tendency towards religion again Mm -hmm. with with this denial and trying to escape from this reality. Yeah. I mean, later on, there's going to be mention of both Zarathustra and the Gnostics as being sort of like little pockets of exemplary white school kind mm-hmm. of wisdom little there's a quotation from the young avesta um that says like oh this 
encapsulates it perfectly or like the early Gnostic ritual, this encapsulates it perfectly. And those are both sort of diabolistic movements, right? That believe the most high God is sort of monstrous and want to, Mm -hmm. and want to say that the, that in the case of the Gnostics, that the, the real God is something beyond and be mm. beyond the Creator, uh, and that uh, that Jesus is is kind of our way our way around, uh, and and uh, yeah, you know, there's a, a one one factor that that kind of leads into here as well is the reference to the Magi. Um, mm. So in the actual Bible, it doesn't specify three magi. It just specifies magi coming from the east with bearing three gifts. And so it became kind of a common associ- association to just assume that there's three of the magi. Uh, but if so, if we uh, look at two things, it's kind of interesting. One, okay, this is relating these three schools uh, to the three magi. Well, they're they're exemplified by frankincense, gold, and myrrh. So that's a fun idea because myrrh we can place in Bina, gold we could place in Tifereth. Frankincense is a little bit less sure of. Perhaps it's Malkuth and that would be like the man of earth. Mm-hmm. And we have this kind of man of earth, lover, and then um, the hermit. Maybe there's something there for meditation. But the other sort of thing that was kind of interesting is like the term magi. Well, I mean, it comes from magus, which is a Latin term, which the easiest interpretation is magician, but it particularly comes from the term for Zoroastrian priests. I was going to say, I think it's fairly uncontroversial that magi would would have meant Zoroastrian priests. Yes, yeah. these are coming from the east um, to worship and uh, following the star and whatnot. So it's uh, that's pretty fascinating. It kind of co- ties in with what you're talking about as well. So that's uh, um, there's there's some there's some more there, you know, yeah. getting under the surface. And so one wonders if in every case. You know, the adepts of the black school, of the white school, of the yellow school. In all those cases, these are people who are subverting religion in the way the Zoroastrians are, you know, flipping the devas and the panduvas. And, you know, usually I think in Hindu, the devas are the gods and the panduvas are the demons. But uh, what's his name? Ohura Mazda. Would would be a a Pandu and uh, Agramanu would be a a Deva. There, there, uh, the Zoroastrians are going to flip those and and be intentionally uh, and and deliberately directly uh, antagonistic towards Vedic doctrine by by saying like your devil is our god. <laughs> like that's <laughs> it's deliberate. Um, in the same way, the early Gnostics are with. Um, uh, with uh, the uh, Yodhe Vavhe, yeah, the Yodhe Vavhe, and, and and these sorts of uh, these sorts of things. So, so I wonder if this is if if this is the attitude of one particular school, mm-hmm. you know, uh, where it says that you know the the black school does this makes the Malkri of the Most High, or if this is just something that adepts of all three schools do, and that that's what makes them distinct from religions, mm-hmm. uh, being that they go under Zeus Prater to get to Prometheus, mm-hmm. you know, or Athena, or, you know, these uh, these gods that teach techne. Uh, yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah, and you can kind of play with the idea that these, well, I mean, if these three are one, based on Crowley's little comment from the perspective of Chokmah, uh, maybe it's the three, in this case, the three can be taken as the three different aspects of one individual person in the same way that we have VVVVV uh, in Lieber 65 and we have the scribe who's taking down the notes as it's coming through. So we have a couple of different levels of just that one individual um, um, within the man Crowley. Yeah, maybe this is what adepthood means no matter no matter which school you're from is the the recognition that uh, uh how is it put in wake world uh that is Jesus Christ but tell no one that he is his secret name is Lucifer and he is the savior of the world and other people say you know that is uh uh, the devil tell no one that his secret name is uh, Yeshua Christos and he is the savior <laughs> of the world, you know, this sort of thing. Yeah. Um, let's, uh, so um, each of these uh, sort of uh, schools has its metaphysical principle and its moral principle, its sort of, you know, motivator and its action. And uh, the, the doctrines aren't, laid out super carefully here but they're they're stated at least that there's you know point one leads to point two so for the yellow school it's uh the yellow school of magic considers with complete scientific and philosophical detachment the fact of the universe as a fact being itself apart from the universe it realizes its impotence to alter the totality to the smallest degree to put it vulgarly it does not try to raise itself from the ground by pulling on its socks. It therefore opposes to the current of phenomena no reaction either of hatred or of sympathy. So far as it attempts to influence the course of events at all, it does so in the only intelligent way conceivable. It seeks to diminish the internal friction. It remains, therefore, in a contemplative attitude." Uh, the ideal reaction to phenomenon is one of perfect elasticity, it says. So he, here we have the, the metaphysical principle. Um, he, he talks about it in the paper that is called A Note in Ontology. Uh, he says, uh, you know, uh, if the universe is infinite, then all other objects, no matter how large they are, are are infinitely small by comparison. Mm -hmm. So if you believe in an infinite universe, then you're also postulating that you don't exist. <laughs> and uh, and so the um, Taoist adepts, their approach to life is that they don't exist. And mm -hmm. when they come up in a against opposition when they're reminded of their <laughs> their own existence uh they navigate that by a kind of magical clarity you know of just just smoothing out the friction being able to do the absolute minimum amount of energy uh, of effort and gliding through uh circumstances quite effortlessly yeah there's that uh, there's a number of passages taken from the Tao Te king here which uh uh one of my favorites is uh do great things while they are yet small hard things while they are yet easy for all things how great or hard soever have a beginning when they are little and easy so thus the wise man accomplisheth the greatest tasks without undertaking anything important 
I think probably mentioned that when we were talking about the Tao Te King before. The, uh, that last, can you read that last sentence again? The wise men. So thus the wise man accomplisheth the greatest tasks without undertaking anything important. Uh, at some point we may, just for fun, like it's not, you know, <laughs> I don't think it's an important Thelemic text, but at some point we may talk about uh, Twin Peaks. <laughs> uh, um, and, it's a, in class C. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and approach it as sort of a, a Thelemic parable. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, w- don't say who he is. Don't even say who the actor who portrays this character is because, you know, it may may make spoilers for some people who haven't seen it yet. But there's a character who shows up whose name is uh, uh, Dougie Jones, who uh, is um, uh, inept. He can't do anything. And you're desperate for someone the whole time to come and help him. And nobody ever does. But as the story plays out, all around him, life improves for everyone who touches him. You know, criminals get their comeuppance, put upon characters, you know, they, they, they find their long-suffering uh, rewarded. And, and he, just, he just, by virtue of, of one or two words, not even words he creates, by repeating the last words of other people, like you would say, <laughs> you'd say like, hey, hey, good morning, Michael, how was your day? Dougie Jones would say, your day. <laughs> and and by doing this, by taking this approach, Dougie Jones improves everything he touches. And uh, so in, in the Thelemic fable, what I'm going to say is Dougie Jones is a, is a babe of the uh, abyss who's attempting his crossing to uh, be nah. And, uh, and, and uh, I'll let it be a, a surprise <laughs> whether or not he succeeds in, in uh, becoming a master of the temple. But this sort of attitude is, is perfectly encapsulates the, the, the Taoist, uh, the attitude of the Taoist sage, right? I mean, Dougie Jones comes off as, as, as disabled, as intellectually, uh, developmentally and ethically disabled, but he's, he, he's not, he's just open and generous and receptive and, and doesn't, doesn't try too hard to do too much. And because of, um, not, not because of his naivety, but because of all the, all the spiritual and magical work he's done in his life to get to that point, to attain to the type of consciousness that he's attained to, he then sinks into this wonderful open place where he solves problems simply by being there. And in the um, and making the smallest actions possible. By making the smallest in the in the Guangzhou, it says in the old time, the sages ruled by doing nothing, <laughs> and and this is. Uh, one way you can imagine the you know the the perfect adept of the mm-hmm. of the yellow school and uh, and and possibly a thelemite at least at that stage of their mm-hmm. their development when they've you know just just coming down from the high of attaining uh, the grade of master of a temple. Yeah, we probably mentioned it before, but uh, Crowley definitely had a really high opinion of the what is being described as the yellow school here. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he, uh, I mentioned uh, Simon F. He his character Simon F. is is a sort of uh, um, not exactly a Sherlock Holmes, but basically a, a detective along the lines of a Sherlock Holmes kind of thing. Uh, but he's very much the Taoist, and uh, uh, Crowley seemed to wish he could be that kind of a, a Taoist. Sherlock Holmes. 
No, not Sherlock Holmes. Uh, um, James Bond. Uh, the the bad guy in the first in Casino Royale. In Casino Royale, I can't remember his name, but he's supposed to be Crowley. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> supposedly the name ex- escapes me now, but yeah, it's based on Crowley. Um, anything anything else you want to say, or even if you just want to read a couple more of those quotes from the Tao Te Ching, to to talk about um, the you know yellow school metaphysics, yellow school practice, yellow school you know what is it? Have we in inca- have we got there? Can we move on? Well, I guess uh, I'll definitely read this one at least. It's, it's just following exactly that last passage that I read, which is so then rigidity and hardness are the stigmata of death, elasticity and adaptability of life. Why stigmata? When I hear the word stigmata, I just think of like the wounds of Christ, right? Saints with the wounds of Christ. But mm-hmm. does it just mean stigma? Is it like that this is the stigma of being... I mean, I could I could easily argue for the idea that rigidity and hardness are the stigmata in the sense that they are um, they are signs of death having been taking hold. So they are in not causes of death, but the uh, signs of death. Rigor mortis. Mm-hmm. Okay. Which actually does make sense. Yeah, because it just basically means a mark, spot, or brand. So. So it, yeah. So um, this the same idea as a st- as a stigma, but not not literally what we think of as a stigma. Yeah. Literally a mark or a brand. And the uh, elasticity and adaptability are the stigmata of life. So these are uh, uh, that's that's an interesting way to consider it uh, when we analyze it that way because yeah, it's not just that we're associating uh, rigidity and hardness with death, but saying that rigidity and hardness are the stigmata, the signs, the branding of death. Yeah. Yeah, I have nothing particular to say about that, but I think it's worth uh, it, it's worth reading into the record. Yeah, uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> it's a nice little Zen koan there. <laughs> uh, so the black school of magic is distinguished fundamentally from the yellow school in that it considers the universe not as neutral, but is definitely a curse. So here. Again, we said each school had its had its metaphysical postulate. This considers the universe not as neutral, but is definitely a curse. And its primary theorem is the first noble truth of the Buddha, everything is sorrow. In the primitive classic of this school, the idea of sorrow is confused with that of sin. The analysis of the philosophers of this school refer every phenomenon to the category of sorrow. It is quite useless to point out to them that certain events are accompanied by joy. They continue their ruthless calculations and prove to your satisfaction, or rather your dissatisfaction, that the more apparently pleasant an event is, the more malignantly deceptive is its fascination. There is only one way of escape even conceivable, and it is quite simple, the way of annihilation. So... 
yeah, if, if life is suffering, and if we want to escape suffering, we want to escape life. I mean, life mm -hmm. is suffering. That's not euphemistic. It's not like, oh, life contains suffering, or some of life is suffering, or, no, don't worry, to suffer is just to live. It's like, no, if you want to escape from suffering, you want to escape from existence, period, full stop. And so, I mean, we talked a little bit in one of our early episodes about why um, Buddhism is not not suicidal. Mm -hmm. <laughs> uh, um, if you kill yourself, you proliferate suffering. All, many people grieve for you. Um, if you and you you take away your ability to uh, do anything about the suffering. If you if you kill yourself, um, perhaps you reincarnate. <laughs> you know you, and then also um, if you kill yourself, then you can't like you say you take away your ability to do something. You can't teach, right? Mm -hmm. You can't spread the doctrine to other people. So rather than uh, doing it by rather doing it with a firearm or something like that, you're supposed to kill yourself with meditation. <laughs> um, gradually, slowly eliminate all of your being until you can just pop out of it, pop out of existence and into nibbana, which just means non-existence or the yeah, state cessation. of wanting for nothing. I mean, we're we're looking at the black school now, um, but. Uh, comparing it with the white school, yeah, that's that has been one of those things like the idea that everything is sorrow. Um, there is a genuine realization there for sure, but it does sort of it does sort of confound me that you know you you can kind of completely just look at the sorrow aspect of things and because uh, you could look at all the joy aspect of things and realize okay yeah there is this interplay going on and that sort of thing and of course this is going to come up with the white school but i think the argument uh, for that is that the joy is uh countered by a resultant suffering so sort of like your joy at enjoying a drink or uh, um, eating food or whatnot is followed by the suffering of whatever the karma of that will be to follow and that sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, the idea is going to be that suffering is the neutral state. You don't have to do anything It's to like suffer. your default, yeah. And in fact, if you choose not to do anything, you very quickly become nihilistic, right? Like <laughs> maybe the reason these people seem no, not uh, so nihilistic is that they don't have any goals, right? The, they've made the decision to become nihilists <laughs> by making the decision to stop desiring things. But the claim is that if you desire things, it's because you've observed suffering, you know, you... Uh, uh, you want to eat because you're hungry. You want to drink because you're thirsty. Uh, you want to succeed in business because uh, either you're you're lonely, you want a mate, or you're impoverished, you want money. And so the the cause of success is suffering. And then once you have success, you become anxious about losing it. Right? Like you see animals, they've made a kill. They're hovering over the kill. They're they're <laughs> looking left and right while they eat it. They're afraid their kill's going to be stolen. So, uh, so the state of happiness is the state of anxiety. And then once you've eaten, you remember how beautiful the meal was, or you know you lose your job. You remember how successful you were in that job, and now you don't have it anymore. So there's a sort of nostalgia which is also viewed as suffering. So any joy 
becomes uh, becomes either the consequence of suffering, the state of suffering, or the state of anticipating a future suffering when the joy when the moment of joy has passed. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, so I guess it's one other, really very pervasive. Yeah, one other dimension to that. One way of viewing it is like using that whole idea of the rajas, sattva, and tamas, which is like that wheel where it's like you're going up on the wheel, you're riding high on the wheel, and then you're descending down the wheel, and you have this constant motion. Uh, so at all times you're you're on that wheel. Mm-hmm. You're never sitting still in the center or anything like that. Uh, one of the ways to talk about class distinction is to talk about the type of anxiety that people feel. So uh, working class people are afraid of being uh, unemployed. Middle class people are afraid of losing station. They're basically, you know, uh, so they they're not they're not afraid of being fired, but they're afraid of being demoted or having responsibilities taken away from them, or afraid of you know that they'll have to move into some adjacent job, which like you know which you know if they're laid off that's fine they're not afraid of poverty, but they might have to get a stopgap job at Walmart and then be around working class people, which would be the worst possible <laughs> thing, uh, and then upper class people are afraid of losing face in front of their social contacts. Everyone at each of these levels, uh, the defining feature is a type of anxiety, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the sort of fear that comes with success. So even when you're happy, <laughs> you're, um, you're, you're constantly gnawing at your shoes. So we got a problem, <laughs> which is uh, this this exact state that you're describing. Um, and we're confronted with this. And these are the three schools and how they deal with it. Here we are in the black school. <laughs> and the uh, the suffering is the badge of all the tribe of sentient beings. So said uh, Huxley in his Evolution and Ethics. Mm. Um, is that true? Yeah, well, I guess the implication is that if you're not sentient, you don't, sh- you don't suffer. Yeah, so we're getting rid of our sentience. That's the goal of the black school. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, getting rid of existence full stop. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, I guess the claim would be that fish don't suffer, that dogs don't suffer. You know, they may experience pain and they may experience hunger, but it's not, it's not the kind of suffering, you know, maybe when a dog is eating, he's truly happy. He's not worried about sometime when he's not eating he's just grateful to be there so the uh we end up looking at okay well what is the cause of all this suffering so if if uh the universe is sorrow everything is sorrow then the buddha's second noble truth is that the cause of sorrow is desire so it's this thing that's um we we're suffering we desire freedom from that suffering we we desire to uh be freed up from that suffering or uh, uh have that have what's causing us lack to be satiated mm-hmm. and then they follow that up with the endless concatenation of causes of which the final root is ignorance i am not concerned to defend the logic of this school i merely state their doctrine the practical issue of all this is that every kind of action is both unavoidable and a crime. Yeah, that's pretty messed up. <laughs> <laughs> it's enough to cause you some uh, serious complexes. 
And uh, I mean, we we tend to have superstition really heavily come into our lives all the time, uh, whether people like to admit it to themselves or not. And I think that's a lot, a big part of like where a lot of our, you know, ethics and morality comes from is the superstition about things. If we could free ourselves up from that superstition, then maybe we could, uh, you know, be a little bit more sane about it. But it's really hard to do that. Notice how similar the practice is. The practical issue is that every kind of action is both unavoidable and a crime. That might lead you to the same kind of friction-reducing instinct that the that the yellow school practitioner exemplifies. Right when they mm-hmm. become when they become a true sage, they just glide through life, um, uh, doing the bare minimum. Uh, uh, trying to trying to minimize activity again. It's it's truly what they value that's different because mm-hmm. the the yellow adept sees their condition as being one of you know being in relationship with this infinite unchangeable universe, and they sort of you know do nothing and glide glide through existence and and believing that the consequences that they will improve everything they touch by re- by reducing. Reducing friction, whereas uh, the black school adept, again, similarly, you know, just meditating, doing basically nothing, but because they believe the the universe is one big error that that it's just their own ignorance, their own misunderstanding that that creates existence at all, and they don't like, they don't seem to, they don't necessarily improve things. They just teach other people how to also stop acting you know yeah it's i can't help but think about the fact that i i think a lot of us intellectuals who chat about these kinds of things tend to have uh, certain similarities in our uh in our in our environment and in our interactions with other people so that we start describing humanity as if they're all like us Mm. You know, and so like we have this issue where like, for instance, if I observe the way that people talk about and react to the ideas of evoking spirits or interacting with spirits and that sort of thing, there's usually a lot of uh, immediate reactionary kind of superstition that comes into play and a lot of the old morality that's tied to it and that sort of thing. Well, what kind of dangers do you have to deal with with these things? And what, you know, what kinds of things should you ask for? And what kinds of things are bad to ask for and that sort of thing? And certainly these are good questions to be asking, but the way that they're asked and the way that they're answered uh, tend to be very much coming from the same kind of place, which sounds very black school. But it also sounds very much like people who have to try and do less so that they can avoid getting beaten up or Mm -hmm. abused. And so they're trying to make their way through life uh, by causing less friction. Uh, That seems to be the lot of a lot of us who are, you know, in this intellectual state of mind talking about these things, as opposed to somebody who's just used to being bigger and able to take what they want and that sort of thing. Yeah, you know, when um, someone teaches glass blowing. Right. Like if you want to learn how to blow glass, um, you might see someone doing glass blowing and go like, oh, that looks really cool. Uh, And then you realize that glass is hot, (laughs) you know. (laughs) And so what are some of the dangers? What are things that are what what kind of things can you make? What things can't you make? What kind of precautions do you need to take? 
and, uh, you know, well, don't inhale, <laughs> you know, don't inhale on the pipe cause you'll, yeah, you'll burn your gun. lungs out. Uh, and, uh, someone go, might go like, oh, you know, that I'm unlikely to inhale. Like I'm, you know, I'll be careful, but maybe the consequences, the possible consequences are so dire that I shouldn't even bother. You know, they mm. might just not take up glass blowing. But it's not because they're afraid they'll lose their souls. <laughs> you know, whereas with with uh with magic, the dangers, the the physical dangers, the immediate dangers are are much much less, you know. Um but uh but people see them as being yeah, the perceived so or like, in, you know the kinds of shadows that your imagination can play and that sort yeah, of thing. Or like you see like a uh, a stunt online it says like a you know professional please don't try this at home like don't jump angry dogs on a bicycle unless you know how mm-hmm. uh um and and people say and then if you go and jump angry dogs on a bicycle people are like oh, how could you do that you're gonna hurt yourself but uh yeah when when and when you're doing magic it's like people are just so so horrified you know mm-hmm. like they're they just very quickly feel like oh you're you're like putting yourself in you th- or i was like i talking about doing like uh you know some kind of mon- magic and getting some kind of result be like you think that's free you know oh, God, there's gonna yeah. be a there's there's gonna be you know moral cons some some other area of your life is gonna suffer because uh, you yeah. you know you, you can't just have a, a win without a loss and yeah. like when people go and get promoted at work you know, it's like, you think that's free? Yeah, exactly. It's like, no, well, am I like, you know, my, I'm going to have more responsibilities. Yeah. Like, and it's no, fun. it wasn't and I free. I had on to, purpose. Yeah, yeah, I had to exemplify the <laughs> the qualities that were desired for somebody to be promoted into this way. This section that you were going to read is, that, that you were you were kind of starting to read is great. The practical issue of all this is that every kind of action is both unavoidable and a crime. I, I must digress to explain that the confusion of thought in this doctrine is constantly recurrent. That is part of the blackness of the ignorance which they confess to be the foundation of their universe. And after all, everyone has surely the right to have his own universe the way he wants it. Yeah. Um, Most primitive fetishistic religions may in fact be considered fairly faithful representations of this philosophy. Where animism holds sway, the medicine man personifies this universal evil and seeks to propitiate it by human sacrifices. I'm not able to evaluate that claim at all. One might imagine that people who are living more directly in con- in contact with the natural world, you know, pe- hunter-gatherers, uh, um, nomads, you know, people who are doing this sort of travel, they might understand life as a as a conflict in a, in a white school way and and be much and have less of a tendency towards nihilism but uh anyway he says what he says and I, i'm just gonna uh i don't really know how to evaluate it but there you are the early forms of judaism and the type of christianity which we associate with the salvation army billy sunday and the fundamentalists of the back blocks of america are a sufficiently simple case of religion whose essence is the propitiation of a malignant demon. And so uh, there's uh, these are some examples of... Uh, we've been talking about this all as like a sort of South Asian phenomenon. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I thought it was important to point out that there are... 
examples of this sort of black school nihilism uh, mm-hmm. cross-culturally, especially if they're the enemy, to just say the, en- yeah. <laughs> the enemy is South Asian <laughs> might be problematic. And I like, I like this uh, description of it as uh, it almost seems tongue-in-cheek to be saying uh, uh, whose essence is the propitiation of a malignant demon. Uh, it seems a little bit tongue-in-cheek, but at the same time, people who are you know in these kinds of fanatical and i will call them fanatical kinds mm. of uh, groups do get carried away with it and i'm i'm not making a comment on people who happen to be christian or people who, who happen to um believe in or practice a certain belief or way of uh life or religion or anything like that i'm not interested in uh downplaying them i'm saying that this uh that getting caught up in that state of mind is again goes back to that superstition yeah. Well, the belief that God is an evil force who needs to be satisfied, right? That's what they're talking. That, yeah. That's what I he's mean. They don't. About. They don't believe it's an evil force, but it it is essentially acting as a, a functioning as an evil force that they have to propitiate in order to avoid suffering. Yeah. Um, here's here's more on in. Uh, Paragraph 11 of this uh, of, of this letter, we have already mentioned the evangelical cults with their ferocious devil god who creates mankind for the pleasure of damning it and forcing it to crawl before him while he yells with drunken glee over the agony of his only son. But in the same class, we must place Christian science, so grotesquely afraid of pain and suffering and evil of every sort, that its dupes can think of nothing better than to bleat denials of its actuality in the hope of hypnotizing themselves into anesthesia. Practically no... And then, so there's... We have two stages so far. We have this uh, idea of animism, where you have like... Uh, an evil god that and you, that you need to make sacrifices to so that he that he'll leave you alone. Mm-hmm. Um, and he so he points out uh, early forms of Judaism, the Salvation Army, um, uh, back block fundamentalists. Oh, back evangel- block, by the way, just means it's basically the equivalent of suburbs. I think. So. Uh, just, I yeah. I assumed he meant Hicks or yeah. something like that. <laughs> but yeah, sure. Um, or, or yeah, maybe rural areas and stuff like that but yeah basically not urban and uh and then he says evangelical cults uh uh, you know all of these uh, the devil god who creates mankind for the pleasure of damning him but then uh, and then uh, there's a second sort of black school magic that is so afraid of pain and suffering they just pretend it doesn't exist they call it illusionary. Yeah, well, they, yeah. And then practically no Westerners have reached the third state of black tradition, the Buddhistic stage. It is only isolated mystics and those men who rant themselves with a contemptuous compliance under the standard of the nearest religion, the ones which bother them least in their quests of nothingness who carry the sororities so far. Sororities so far. The true black adepts, they say they, they have a contemptuous compliance under the standard of the nearest religion, um, and, and they don't, they, but they don't bother with it in a, in a, in a moral, ethical, intellectual way. They just, they just comply for the sake of complying because, you know, they must, you know, reducing friction like yellow mm. school adepts, and then, uh, and then they do their Buddhistic work to try and overcome uh, their existence. Uh, uh, when is he going to start talking about Schopenhauer? It's important because we read that Nietzsche thing. Oh, yeah. Let, uh, oh, no, he says, let us leave the sinister figure of Schopenhauer. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> Where am I? Yeah, I wonder if we uh, bypassed that or if it's... Uh, um... Oh yeah. Well, he does. He does mention on the next page where it's. Uh, but even so, few men of any real eminence were found to take the axioms of pessimism seriously. Huxley, for all his harping on the minor key, was an an eupeptic Tory. The culmination of the black philosophy is only found in Schopenhauer, and we may regard him as having been obsessed, on the one hand, by the despair born of that false skepticism which he learnt from the bankruptcy of Hume and Kant. Can't wait to look at Hume as we tend <laughs> to do. On the other hand, by the direct obsession of the Buddhist documents of which he was one of the earliest Europeans to obtain access. He was, so to speak, driven to suicide by his own vanity, a curious parallel to Krilikov in The Possessed of Dostoevsky. Notice the similarity here between this and the, the, the Nietzsche that I read, where it says that uh, Schopenhauer said no to life and finally himself. Here, uh, he was, so to speak, driven to suicide by his own vanity. Mm-hmm. Uh, so to speak... Because he didn't actually kill himself. He died of something called pulmonary respiratory failure, which makes nonsense to me. I don't know what that means. It means that your body has agreed to uh, your whole program of... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So the reason I'm confused is that pulmonary just refers to the lungs. And so pulmonary respiratory figure seems redundant. (laughs) I Googled it and tried to figure out what they were talking about, but Google doesn't understand either. Um, The pulmonary artery is the artery that goes from the heart to the lungs. So maybe they meant a respiratory failure, which was caused by a sort of lack of blood to the to to, you know. And so anyway, the human, yeah, and we can. We could try to strain metaphors and come up with ways that that's symbolic. (laughs) Pulmonary, uh, maybe uh, something to do with pneuma and spirit or whatever, but, you know, it's it's a waste of time. (laughs) Maybe it's purely, uh, maybe uh, just a purely metaphorical suicide in the sense of like a spiritual suicide in this case. Here's another thing to notice. Uh, Again, this is attributed to Armand, uh, and Crowley says he doesn't agree with it in every point but that it's comprehensive and erudite and, you know... Uh, Crowley-esque. Yeah, <laughs> so that, that, that he, was, he wanted Dear Sister to have it in its, in its totality. One of Crowley's most important teachers is, ends up being a Buddhist. Uh, is it Alan Bennett? Alan Bennett. Who yes. uh, first taught Crowley meditation and then... Um, You've been messing with the Goetia, dear brother. No, I haven't. Well, then it's been messing with you. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, so as a Buddhist, Alan Bennett wrote a number of articles for the Equinox. There's long sections of the Temple of Solomon the King uh, that talk about the different Buddhist trances that it's t- possible to to obtain, and that's seen as useful. So in this article, Ar- Armand uh, wants to say that the not that I, I was going to say that the Buddhists are the worst of the worst, mm-hmm. uh, maybe being because they're the most advanced of the black school. Maybe that makes them the best of the worst. Maybe the, being the more capable. advanced is better. <laughs> most um, capable of the worst. But uh, but you know, very many of the people that were Crowley's teachers or that he were his students end up being uh, lifelong rivals. 
And Alan Bennett uh, is a lifelong friend, despite being a devotee of the mm-hmm. black school. And one imagines an advanced black school adept because, you know, he was able to achieve enough to teach Crowley and then to be accepted yeah. to write for Crowley. So. And since you since you put it that way, I feel like uh, that's a good point to bring up because uh, it's easy to fall into the us against them kind of mentality as always. But again, these uh, they uh, maybe all three schools are one, but also they all admit they you know, they all there's overlap. And there's interpenetration. And Crowley himself, before receiving the Book of the Law, or at the time of receiving the Book of the Law, was a self-professed Buddhist mm-hmm. and and pretty much uh, had had no real faith in anything, no real interest in anything. He was kind of like uh, disillusioned at the idea of magic and, and everything. So, I mean, you could pretty much call him black school at that point. Well, the, if, if the enemy is nihilism and life denial and that we want to uh, not escape suffering by just dying, but escape suffering by, um, by finding vigorousness and joy in our existence, then that casts the Buddhist uh, master in a very specific light, right? Like that means the accusation is nihilism. That mm-hmm. the enemy is nihilism. The accusation is nihilism. Um, but if the other things it says about the black school are correct, that they're um, skeptical and 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 you know daring and scientific and willing to make a mockery of the Most High, like to play like that, to like tell jokes about I saw Dad yeah. naked, <laughs> you know, like. <laughs> Um, this is the vigorousness and the conflict that Thelemites are, are, are looking for. This is mm. the, the play of existence. Yeah, you know, that makes me wonder because uh, I think uh, before I had ever discovered Thelema, I, had, uh, I was in a period of uh, Buddhism at one point where I made uh, the Bodhisattva Oath, uh, which is to, uh, instead of accepting cessation for yourself uh, into nirvana, you instead uh, vow to constantly return until all all beings are also first liberated. And so it was after that that I discovered Thelema. And I feel like we, you know, Thelemites are essentially bodhisattvas in a sense. You know, we're constantly vowed to return and engage with this life. So in a sense, it feels like making that oath is like pulling the veil back and realizing that no existence is pure joy. So it's it's taking that shroud of blackness down, you know. Um, and it'd be interesting to find out if others have had a similar kind of experience or if there's anything uh, to that. Uh, let us leave the sinister figure of Schopenhauer for the mysteriously radiant shape of Spinoza. And here he doesn't say, you know anything about Schopenhauer other than that he's a Buddhist, and he says even less about Spinoza. <laughs> that uh, <he's> radiant? <laughs> this latter philosopher, in respect at least of his pantheism, represents fairly enough the fundamental thesis of the white tradition. Almost the first observation that we have to make is that this white tradition is hardly discoverable outside of Europe. It appears first in the legend of Dionysus, in this connection, read carefully Browning's Apollo and the Fates, which we'll maybe we'll do on the podcast at some point. Uh, the central idea of the white school is that, admitted that everything is sorrow for the profane, the initiate has the means of transforming it into everything is joy. 
I, I wanted to read that before I responded to what you were saying because mm. it's it 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 gets us there. Um, yeah. I, so I don't know whether if it, it's the Lima or whether it's parenting. The two things seem to have work in conjunction, but uh, uh, or maybe it's just old age. Maybe it's just what what being in your forties is like. Mm-hmm. Um, but everything is bittersweet. I no, I no longer experience sorrow and joy as uh, as opposites on a spectrum. When you're talking about opposites, you're talking about one kind of force. You know, you're not talking about two things that are as radically different mm-hmm. as possible. Like a polar bear is not the opposite of a television. You're talking about one force and the extremities of that kind of force, the total absence of heat, it being, you know, absolute zero, or the most heat you can possibly have in one yeah. system, those are the, the sort of opposites. And I don't, I don't experience, like, absolute misery as being the same kind of force anymore as, like, ecstatic joy. There's not, it's not an emotional spectrum. And, uh, and, and very often sorrow and and joy are are co co-occurrent you know uh like when you have a very young child they have very pure emotions and so like when a six-month-old looks up at you and smiles just because you're his dad it's like it it there's it, it it's like turning on a lamp like hmm. it just bursts into you and there's no escape from the 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 purity of that smile it's it's what Dougie Jones does <laughs> and it just it just it, it guts you hmm. and it is it is both pure joy and deep sorrow because like y- you know that the child is just going to grow up and there's going to be a day when he never looks at you like that again. Hmm. Or like, you know, when you're carrying your child, someday you're going to put your kid down and never pick them up again. Hmm. Adult parents don't pick up adult children. <laughs> and you, and when that happens, you don't know when it's going to be. I'm not the first person to make this insight. I heard this on a playground somewhere, so surely it's in some shitty self-help book that some parent was reading. <laughs> but at some point, you pick, put your child down and never pick them up again. And the realization of this is so profound, and it doesn't ruin the moment. Hmm. You know, it, it doesn't become the, 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 the ever-present sorrow of parenting doesn't obliterate the joy it purifies it Hmm. and uh i don't know whether other parents feel this as as acutely as i do or whether you know my regular meditation and magic and thalamic practice has some role in this but it's uh but, but every pleasant moment not just with my son every pleasant moment makes me sad (laughs) <laughs> like if I, like saying I love you to my wife makes me sad, uh, you know, seeing a good movie makes me sad, but like the, the, the sorrow has a, has, as a, has a, is a, a clarifying, uh, has a clarifying element that's, that's very, very profound. And, uh, and it makes the, it makes the joy sharp. Mm-hmm. It, uh, you know, it's uh, the way they talk about it in, uh, Libra 65, where the holy guardian angel is, is a needle, 
that or a, or a sword or a knife or a serpent fang and that it injects venom that burns away your existence like this is the way the way sorrow hits joy creates that kind of sharpness purifying sharpness and uh, one absolutely does not negate the other the 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 ecstasy is be, it becomes pervasive very very quickly mm. does that uh, you're not you're not a parent but you're the other two things you're a thelemite and you're an old man <laughs> <laughs> do, do you experience no, does, that, that does that speak to you at all yeah that resonates i mean it's definitely one of those things where i've gone through periods where i've fallen away from that perspective on things but i think that's the joy of I mean, this white school project and the project of Thelema um, is being able to put yourself in that state. You know, the sorrows are as shadows they pass and are done, but there is that which remains. And there's this, yeah, the, the, it's like when you're watching a movie that's a really, really um, cathartic movie and you go through some real, you know, heartbreak and heartache and, and all that sort of thing. And you come out the end of it with this profound feeling of emotion uh, and catharsis. And then you walk away from it and you can move on. And and yeah, like it's got that kind of uh, clarifying or purifying or consecrating kind of effect on you. And uh, being able to engage with life in that way is not always easy. You know, it's you get so caught up in identifying with a lot of the suffering that you you go through so it's easy to get distracted and fall from that so it's not like a you know it's not just an easy fix by any means i don't like exactly the way armand puts it here he says existence is pure joy that's a quote from the book of the law sorrow is caused by the failure to perceive this fact but it is not a misfortune we have invented sorrow, which does not matter so much after all, in order, they have the, in order to have the exuberant satisfaction of getting rid of it. Existence is thus a sacrament. What he's trying to do here is flip the Buddhistic conversation on its head. Everything we said before about how success is motivated by sorrow, permeated with anxiety, and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and followed with nostalgic loss. What he's trying to say here is that um, is that no no no, uh, overcoming sorrow just is joy, and so we have these obstacles for for the for the value of of overcoming it uh, in order to have the exuberant satisfaction of getting rid of sorrow. Existence is thus a sacrament, but I I, I yeah I don't I I don't think that's exactly right. Mm-hmm. I think the I think the sorrow has. It's like the fire which dissolves the heroin. <laughs> you know, you can't. Okay, okay, you, go on. You, you, you can't inject straight powdered heroin. You have to melt it first. At least that's what the movies tell me. You know, you have your little metal spoon and your little rubber rod and your little needle, and all of these things are 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 sorrow. You know, you have this this suffering of the of the technique, and then the the sacrament of taking the <laughs> of taking the drug i like the i like i like how he bookends it existence is pure joy existence is thus a sacrament but i think it's a eucharist of more than one element i think the the bread and the wine i'm trying to think of a of a more apt analogy oh yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I, like ayahuasca 
Like mm. the DMT, uh, the body very, very quickly processes it out. So you can only get high for two or three seconds. Um, but there's another agent that suppresses the enzyme that, that metabolizes the DMT so that you have to, you have to take this, this kind of poison Mm-hmm. Um, which allows the psychotropic drug to have an effect. Yeah. And, uh, and so, you know, and so you, somebody... take your, you take your ayahuasca, you throw up for half an hour, you shit your pants, <laughs> and then you get to have your trip. <laughs> <laughs> so the, 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 the black school person will say, you know, that's not free getting that trip. And it's yeah. like, yeah, that's fine. Yeah. No, but I, eventually you come to love the taste of vomit. <laughs> exactly picking it out of your teeth and with your tongue um <laughs> i hope you're not eating while you're listening the to this, audience the can't see me mugging to the camera <laughs> just, just, you know I just, i'm a little bit embarrassed at myself by all these shitty analogies that come out. <laughs> uh, and here's more proof that we're going to nietzsche uh, or at least cribbing from Nietzsche. Nietzsche expresses the philosophy of this school to that extent with considerable accuracy and vigor. The man who denounces life merely defines himself as the man who is unequal to it. The brave man rejoices in giving and taking hard knocks, and the brave man is joyous. The Scandinavian idea of Valhalla may be primitive, but it is manly, a heaven of popular consort uh, like the Christian, of unconscious repose like the Buddhist, or even of sensual enjoyment like the Muslim, excites his nausea and contempt. He understands that the only joy worthwhile is the joy of continual victory, and that victory itself would become as tame as croquet if it were not spiced by equally continual defeat this is more like what i'm saying yeah um one of the easier chapters of thus spake zarathustra is called at least in the kaufman translation on the afterworldly mm-hmm. and so if if you just read kaufman's on the afterworldly from Nietzsche's uh, Zarathustra. Yeah, is that trend? Well, I guess you wouldn't know necessarily, but is the afterworldly kind of translated from like that Hinterwelt kind of? Uh... Uh, I think, I, I think in the German it's actually metaphysics. Oh, okay. On on metaphysics, but Kaufman translates it to on the afterworldly, uh, you know, like post physical, because it, it it's sort of about the life denial that comes from imagining a heaven. Mm-hmm. And, and we'll explain this paragraph more completely. Uh, yeah, if you're not already, start reading Nietzsche for yourself. Uh, mm-hmm. My uh, uh, <laughs> my my read is superficial, so you should read it. <laughs> <laughs> Never going to stop being bemused by that. <laughs> no, I know. I, I sometimes uh, <laughs> somebody says something, and I won't let it go either. <laughs> yeah, no, you know, it's hard. It's so hard when the criticism is accurate. you just feel bad about it for days um we we have the aphorism uh well that's not correct sorry we have the parable of uh from libra 65 of the boat oh if you want to do that let's do that because i didn't mark that out so okay go ahead yeah we have uh as i mentioned it's from libra 65 chapter two uh which is moreover i beheld a vision of a river 
There was a little boat thereon, and in it, under purple sails, was a golden woman, an image of Asi, wrought in finest gold. Also the river was of blood, and the boat of shining steel. Then I loved her, and loosing my girdle, cast myself into the stream. I gathered myself into the little boat, and for many days and nights did I love her, burning beautiful incense before her. Yea, I gave her of the flower of my youth. But she stirred not. Only by my kisses I defiled her, so that she turned to blackness before me. Yet I worshipped her, and gave her of the flower of my youth. Also it came to pass that thereby she sickened and corrupted before me. Almost I cast myself into the stream. Then at the end appointed her body was whiter than the milk of the stars, and her lips red and warm as the sunset, and her life of a white heat like the heat of the midmost sun. Then rose she up from the abyss of ages of sleep, and her body embraced me. Altogether I melted in her beauty and was glad. The river also became the river of Amrit, and the little boat was the chariot of the flesh, and the sails thereof the blood of the heart that beareth me, that beareth me. So this idea of um, whatever the object of affection or adoration, um, just keep fucking adoring it. <laughs> <laughs> Persist beyond, uh, beyond the uh, inevitable Apophis stage, if we want to relate it to the IAO formula. Yeah, I think that's right. It's a difficult passage to um, understand. I mean, we're talking about in relation to like the the joy of conflict and the joy of defeat and the joy of victory and that life is a struggle. And so, you know, uh, but the love object putrefying just because you love it is not exactly the same thing, but uh, maybe it's more like just off the top of the head uh, of my head. Maybe it's more like um, when you uh, meet a, a nice looking person and you go and you realize they also think you're nice looking and you go on a few dates with them and, you know, you talk about a couple of movies that you both like. And then, uh, you know, as you begin to have uh deeper investment in that relationship you may learn things about them that you find just revolting hmm. uh that you're horrified by that you're you know disgusted by and, and and so the the love object might you know putrefy in your arms but rather than you know allowing that to explode the relationship it actually it brings you closer to the person because you're oh you know you're aware of their vulnerabilities and you know they don't have anything to hide from you anymore or whatever and so uh you can become the 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 love that is shared between you becomes uh becomes more real and 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 more profound by virtue of the fact that um that that you know we you know and have accepted each other's secrets mm -hmm. and uh and and beholding the complete person person you end up beholding sort of a a a more profound and more ro robust love object than just the you know the the nice looking 
Yeah, it's almost like you, you, you come into met. you come into that relationship with a very strong projection of what you think that person is mm-hmm. and what they represent to you, almost as a reflection of yourself in many ways. And then as you as that relationship grows, you grow past that and you start to realize that it's not your projection. This is there's an actual person underlying it, and then that process does involve yeah a lot of that friction in the gradual deeper union, and then finally your full acceptance of the actual person maybe uh um that final end result it also makes me think of like you know if i'm practicing guitar i i definitely go through those periods where it starts to become re- revolting to me <laughs> because you're you're just get sick of it and you need to get away from it and trying to persist in it it becomes difficult at some point so trying to persist through that eventually you come out the other side with a sort of union where it's like a lot of the things are just second nature to you and it's it's part of you now instead of being a separate thing. I, we might have this relationship to the world at all as well. You know, they're gradually developing a, a, a picture of, you know, what we've been taught to understand. You know, I, I, I wasn't raised in, in, with any theistic model, but maybe if you know, if people believe in heaven and hell and the mercy of Jesus Christ and that, you know, it's it's generally good to be Christian and to, you know, and to, to be part of a Christian community and then uh, to um, realize that there m- might be things in in not only the world, you know, but your world, maybe within your own community, that are very, very profoundly horrific, mm-hmm. and the disillusion can be grave, but you can grow into a into a spiritual practice. You know, if you stop being religious and start being a, a magician, developing into a, a a practice that that is not afraid to look at the world as it is, mm-hmm. to think about your own mind, your own relationship to gods as you as you encounter them this ebb and flow of of disgust and mm-hmm. and uh and and clarification and reunification it it might become something that 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 reflects the journey of the magician in a more profound way like like the way the gnostics talk about uh, sort of discovering uh, what is the gospel of Judas, where everybody's doing these Eucharists again and again and again, and Jesus tells them that they're all that they're you know the God you're worshiping performing this Eucharist. It's not my God. Like I don't know what this Eucharist is. Hmm. Uh, and um, and then he tells only Judas that the real ritual is the ritual of baptism, and that uh, and that uh, Eucharist is for an evil god mm-hmm. <laughs> and uh and that what you want to focus on is is the baptism of some higher god you know maybe the eucharist is for yaldabaoth or yodhevavhe or el which are um cain and cain and abel not not any creator deity so anyway it's uh, uh it's another case where it's it's like uh i guess it's you can meditate on it because mm-hmm. it's not immediately obvious necessarily yeah. One thing, but what it, one thing it doesn't talk about is, is, is conflict, is striving, is doing your best. Yeah. It's just being present and 
giving your worship and letting what comes comes. Yeah, there's you know? actually in that same chapter there's a um another parable where it's the uh, the 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 parable of the swan where I was riding on a swan and then a little crazy boy asked me where's this swan winging to uh and uh no whither no way no you know we're not going anywhere in particular and then well why all this endless winging and it's like is there not pure joy for someone who wouldn't you know basically enjoy the journey and is there not nothing but suffering for somebody who's constantly fixated on the the end point i'm not completely sure we're done with letter number seven, but I have only one or two quotations to read from letter number eight. And I think I, I think the idea of white versus black is more or less clear. Mm-hmm. Um, here from letter number eight, it has been said by some that the law of Thelema appeals only to the elite of humanity. No doubt here is this much in this assertion, that only the highest can take full advantage of the extraordinary opportunities which it offers. At the same time, the law is for all. Each in his degree, every man may learn to realize the nature of his own being and develop it in freedom. It is by this means that the white school of magic can justify its past, redeem its present, and assure its future, by guaranteeing to every human being a life of liberty and love. So, yeah, I think uh, one of the things that kind of encapsulates and perhaps uh, resolves a lot of these things that have been talked about in uh, regarding the white school comes in with the idea of alchemy, essentially using alchemy as the sort of drumming up of uh, uh, the overall program here. We are using alchemy on ourselves. We are going through this process of knowing ourselves, understanding our true will, and and this kind of program as uh, this white school sort of process uh, that essentially justifies existence. So it's not so much that we need to worry about the end goal of it per se, it's this this alchemy process itself is in a sense the goal. So what have we got here? We've got religion being the idea of denial of our conditions. You know, we just assert a doctrine and try to live by rules without doing any kind of science, without observing the world, or without really having a personal relationship with with God or or or, or understanding the universe, just being committed to the doctrine on the page mm-hmm. and trying to develop ourselves along those lines. And this, in a way, is what I was advocating in terms of people's relationship with the book of the law, right? That mm-hmm. you, you, you read it, you try to understand what it says, you ask it questions, and, mm-hmm. and you let yourself develop along uh, these lines. Then we have the three schools of magic, each of which are in their own way about liberty, but which each have different core tenets that mean this liberty expresses itself in a different way. Uh, for the yellow school adept, we have the idea that the, the, the universe is very large and very profound and sort of unmovable. Uh, so liberty is expressed by becoming the kind of person who does fairly little limits friction and moves sort of in their prescribed 
orbit in a way very much like what we talk about in Thelema. Um, uh, we have the black school adept who sees the world as an error and all activities as, as sin and who tries to drop out of existence except perhaps coming back to teach other people how to drop out of existence. Mm. And then we have uh, the, the white school adept who sees life as suffering, but existence as joy and that the, the suffering is somehow a vehicle to realize joy. And so this becomes about uh, 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 still still about realizing the appropriate path, you know, the, the, the appropriate way to behave in the universe. But the appropriate way to behave it, uh, is wrought with friction. You know, we, mm-hmm. we, we come to in, enjoy conflict and enjoy striving and enjoy having goals to fight for and things to, things to proceed with. And so we've summarized white, black, and yellow. And uh, the only thing left to do is to sort of define Thelema as being a white school, but with a, a, a deep yellow influence that it includes this idea of right relation to cosmos you know when we uh define our true will when we attain the knowledge and conversation of the holy guardian angel when we make our attempt to cross the abyss we're achieving freedom by by putting ourselves in a in um I, I, I'm trying not to say harmonious relationship mm. because uh, life should still be wrought with conflict, but in an appropriate relationship, uh, given what we see as maybe our original nature or something and, and the, the, the profundity of circumstance acknowledged. So. Yeah, and I think uh, going back to maybe taking a like that being one perspective on a, another alternative perspective we can also take not in in exclusion of that or anything like that but is the idea of the three schools being one where it's uh, we can use the black school as our means of the uh, in the skeptical sense where it's um almost dissociating becoming more objective to things to to understand them more clearly and unobstructedly and then the yellow school being understanding more clearly our place in the overall pattern of things and the white school being plunging into that existence yeah that's great that's very very good um and so we're we're left with we can ask a few questions, but one question that I'm left with is whether this uh, this this Gnostic idea, this you know, this question about uh, you know, is it Yahweh or Yaldabaoth? You know, is it or is it Ale or is it Ale, a father god, a sky father? Is it Yahweh, a, a thunder hero? Uh, is it Yaldabaoth, uh, a demon who believes he's God, who's made the world by, you know, almost by mistake? And so when, and, and when we ask these kinds of questions, are those the kinds of questions that are asked by the adepts of the white school? It's very, these are very Thelemic kinds of questions. You know, if we're, uh, if we're Gnostics, we're in this tradition. Um, but in the parables from 418 it seems like that's 
the more like black school behavior. And so I, my question is may, is whether or not maybe this is just the condition of being a magician as opposed to, you know, is this white school behavior? Is this black school behavior? Or is this just the behavior of adepts? Yeah. Regardless of, of school. Yeah. It does seem like uh, ultimately you don't get any free, you know, passes to have an easy answer. Um, and that's kind of the point for a magician. Like easy answers come with religion. You know, I think if you become too dogmatic, uh, I mean, I, I view it as being like, okay, white school seems the way to go if we're signing on for the Thelemic project. So that's where I'm trying to work towards and analyze myself in terms of transmutation into um, that kind of an ideal. And I think that makes sense. But that being said, I think being a magician, as you say, is you're signing on for the overall project of existence. You know? Um, I think we've understood the article. Cool. More or less. How are you? Uh, that seemed pretty good. All right. So thank you so much for joining me once again, Michael. Yeah, that was great. Love is the law, love under will. Love is the law, love under will. Thanks for listening. Find us online at torontothelema.org. Watch for events on Meetup and the usual social media spots, and join us again in the darkly splendid abodes. Yeah, we didn't get funny there. We, just got, <laughs> <laughs> we got depressing. We should annihilate existence. <laughs>